Welcome to Life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. Today, I have the privilege of being here with Susan Golombach, Director of Center for Family Research at the University of Cambridge, and also author of the book, We Are Family, The Modern Transformation of Parents and Children. Welcome to Life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. Today, I have the privilege of being here with Susan Golombach, who is the director of the Center of Family Research at the University of Cambridge. She has spent a professional lifetime of researching and looking at different families and how they come to be. It really is an honor to have you here, so thank you. Pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. I get tears in my eyes when I think about the wealth of information that your research has provided and the comfort and the security that that can provide to, I don't know how many millions of people and influence and impact legislation and really make a difference in the world and how we look at families. The one reason why I reached out to you initially was because of the work that I do with parents and moms that use donor eggs. And through your book, you go through all the different types of family and the transition and how we saw IVF and how it's relatively normalized versus donor egg and then gay parents. And we go to transgender in your book. So is there an overall finding that you have seen in your research regarding children and regarding the process the parents go through? As you mentioned, I started out in this field of research a long time ago. It was actually in the mid 1970s. And that was studying lesbian mother families because at that time, lesbian women lost custody of their children when they divorced their former husbands. So the initial research was set up to look at the impact on children of growing up in a lesbian mother family, because one reason judges always awarded custody to mothers, uh, sorry, to fathers over mothers, was that there's no evidence on what the outcomes would be for the children. And it was assumed in these days that the outcomes would be negative, so that children would show Um, more emotional and behavioral problems, for example, growing up in a lesbian mother family. So that's how the research began. And um, what I found from these early studies was that the children were no different from children in traditional families with a mum and a dad. And then um, I went on to study other new family forms as they emerged. So children born through IVF, through donor conception, so sperm donation originally, and then later egg donation. Also families formed through surrogacy, um, gay father families, and as you mentioned more recently, children with transgender parents. And I think, you know, as the years have gone on, and I've begun to understand what these findings are showing us more generally, the the overriding um, conclusion from this work is that really the structure of families matters much less for children than the quality of relationships between children and their parents. And so if I was just to sum it up very briefly um, in answer to your question, I would say that was it. That's profound in in so many ways. And there's so many ways to look at the detail and the information that has gone into that. Lots of times I tell people, and I don't know if this is something that you would agree with or not, um, but lots of times I, I suggest to people that their story is their story and how they came to be and um, everything that's gone on in the world. 
and the child's story is their story. And how we come to accept our story in order to communicate it to the child and to those around us is so important for that child's story. So when you did all of this research, and I'm, I'm thinking back to imagining lesbian couples having their children taken away and, and the impact of society as a whole. How do you do that? How do you do the research and gather that information? And now to Donor Egg, and now surrogacy was just awarded, at least in New York State, to be allowed. Yes. So, um, well, in the early days, it was quite difficult because there A, weren't so many of these different families. And also often um, the families really tried to keep under the radar. So they weren't necessarily open about their family or about their sexuality or how they'd had their children to the outside world. But um, the first study we did by working with groups of lesbian mothers um, that are formed in the United Kingdom to give each other support over these issues. And in fact, it was because um, these groups called for a volunteer, somebody to come and do this research. That's how I first got involved. So just by reading a magazine article. And at the time, um, I was beginning a master's degree in child development. So I was very interested in this issue. And that's really how it all started. And, um, and then, of course, I moved on. I, I then became interested in different kinds of families more generally, because every new family type that came on board um, there were critics and people assumed that this would be, you know, bad for children in some way, it would harm children. So then I became interested in, you know, the other family types as they emerged. I'm thinking to myself to get to become interested and to be able to research something where it wasn't just, at least from my recollection in the United States, it wasn't just people opposing, there was backlash. It was, it, it got a little bit violent at times. Um, and so to be able to be on that edge of saying, wait, maybe, maybe this isn't bad. Maybe we really need to look at this and research it and see what happens to these families over time. Mm. So I did my first study in the United Kingdom because that's where I live and that's where, where uh -huh. I work. But in the early days, there were two studies that were doing the same thing with lesbian mother families in the United States. So one by Richard Green on the East Coast, he was at Stony Brook, and one by Martha Kirkpatrick, who was at UCLA. And what was interesting is that these three studies all came to exactly the same conclusions. They had the same findings. So that's where it really all began. And I mean, you asked how I, I did this research. So, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's living in New York City. <laughs> oh, okay. it's, it's, um, you know, and I'm in the apartment and so how did I actually do the research? So a lot of it with families formed through different kinds of assisted reproduction. I work very closely with fertility clinics up and down the country. In the UK, I also actually collaborated with some in the US as well, including in New York, depending on the study. Yeah. So we built up close relationships with the clinics. And that's really how we managed to do the research. It was kind of collaborative effort. But 
I found that the parents generally were happy to take part because nothing was known about these questions, you know, about the outcome for children if they lacked a genetic link with their mom or their dad, or sometimes both parents, or if they were born through surrogacy. And so the parents were generally happy to take part because they wanted to know the answers to these questions as well. But on the other hand, they were also worried, some of them, because particularly, um, not so much now, but in, in the earlier days, that parents were often worried about um, disclosing this information to their children, and often they didn't do that. Or they felt afterwards, well, I wish I had, but I've left it too late. So there was a concern from parents that by taking part in research, this might jeopardize their secret about their child's origins. Right. But more recently, um, attitudes have changed. And although not all parents are open with their children, there's certainly been a move towards greater openness. And parents are now encouraged to be more open with the children. And certainly our research has shown that when parents do talk to their children about their conception from an early age, that the children generally respond well. Um, you know, the parents worry that the child won't love them so much or the child will be very upset or distressed. And actually we found through our research that when parents do begin to talk to their children at an early age, the children are either just not at all interested or they're curious, mm -hmm. but the parents find that their fears about, you know, the negative consequences of openness um, are unfounded because the children um, seem to accept the information as long as, you know, the parents talk to them openly when they're young. Where there are problems is where children aren't told and then they find out later by accident. Yeah. Um, and that's often when they feel, you know, angry with their parents, deceived by their parents, some, you know, feel that it's caused them a lot of emotional harm. So one thing that's come out of our research is that the age at which parents begin to talk to their children about their conception um, is important in terms of how children feel about it. Yeah, I, um... I'm so glad that you're able to offer that, not just on an emotional level for the parents, but also on a research finding level. Because parents do struggle with this and they struggle after the child is born also. But prior to the child being born, when it comes to third-party reproduction, either donor egg or sperm or um, embryo, which I've worked with some people, not a lot with the donor embryo at this point, it's still a little bit new in my, my professional life and um, other types of families, I encourage them to write a story while their baby is in their belly or in the surrogate's belly as to how they came to be. And that's actually how I wound up writing this little children's book that I wrote. Because it's, I think being able to write the story, it's a very difficult task or um, almost job for people to try and do, but it allows that acceptance of the parent, which is so important of how they had to struggle in order to have this child that was really born out of love. And then to be able to give that to them. The parents that have not told their children until they're older, I find there's much more of a struggle on the part of the parents and then for the child. So it, it really is mirroring and it's trying to figure out how to help those, those parents 
be comfortable enough to tell their story. And the other outcome of it, and I think you did some research in this area as well, is what about the nuclear family and then the extended family of the grandparents and mm. you know, their community and if they're religious, the religious impact. Yeah, I think um, what parents worry about is that the grandparents who don't have a genetic biological link to the child yeah. Yeah. won't probably accept the child. And in our research, we found that did seem to be true to a certain extent. But I think, you know, so much has changed in recent years um, that grandparents generally, once even whatever reservations they may have had before the child arrived, that generally, you know, grandparents are just very thrilled to have a, a new grandchild. And, um, you know, any concerns the parents had about this don't seem to be played out in reality. And another thing you mentioned before, egg donation, in a recent study um, that I've been uh, doing with my colleagues, it's at the Center for Family Research. We found that during pregnancy, a lot of women who have children through egg donation do worry about their relationship with the child. They worry if they'll bond with the child and that kind of thing. But for the large majority, once the child arrives, then again, you know, these concerns disappear. It's not 100% true for everybody, because in our study, we found that a very a small, a very small proportion, but really it took much longer for them to feel they had bonded with their child. Um, what we don't know is, I mean, that happens with um, children born through natural conception as well. So we don't know whether it's more so with mothers through egg donation or not, but it's, it's a very small proportion, but it just seems that it can take a bit longer for a very small minority of mothers. I'm so glad that you said that. I really can't thank you enough because there is a, um, an element of people who have children through natural conception, there is a challenge in bonding. So the fact that we're not sure if it's mirroring or not is very significant. Uh, I, I really hope that people hear that, that are having that challenge in bonding. Mm -hmm. And I, there's this story that I love. I heard it at a seminar online. I don't remember where, but one of the parents explained to the child that they were born through donor egg. And they did such a job of explaining this story that the next day at show and tell, the child went in and told everybody that they were born through donor egg. And so now everybody found out. And I really have to commend that parent. And even I imagine the school system, which I know that you talk about, and the community at large, and how we get them also to understand what helps in order of having the other children accept and not, for lack of a word, better word, bully the, the child born through a third party reproduction. Yes, I think schools can play a really important part here. I mean, where we found the biggest problems are children with LGBT parents because, you know, sometimes they are stigmatized at school. Yeah. And also they say, you know, they're the ones who are always having to explain about their family. It shouldn't be up to them. The school should do this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, depending where the school is um, or where the ch child lives, because as you said, you know, community is really important here. That for some children, you know, maybe those living in the middle of Manhattan, it's not really an issue because 
you know, generally attitudes are more liberal than they might be in other parts of the US or parts of the UK. Um, but, you know, depending on where the child lives, sometimes their family isn't accepted. And schools can do a lot to help with that. Um, and that's, you know, when we speak to children, ask them about their experiences at school, this is what they tell us. You know, schools can do things better because not only can they talk about our families, but they can show different kinds of families in the books they read, the films they see, and, and the pictures on the walls, and all these things can really make a difference to children and feeling accepted. So I think there's a big role for schools here. I believe you did some work with the schools to do some educational pieces. Yes, we did in the United Kingdom. We collaborated with the LGBT organization Stonewall and we um, interviewed children from age four right up until age 18 about their experience at school, children with um, LGBT parents. And it, it was a great study because the children themselves came up with a set of recommendations about what schools that. do better. Yeah. And um, so that was really helpful. And then Stormwall used it to make resource packs for schools that were sent around to you know, tens of thousands of schools. So, um, you know, that's a way in which research can actually make a difference to children's lives. Yes, and listening to the child is... Exactly. Is, yeah, it's, it's so significant and important. I know whenever I had a staff that worked for me, um, when I worked in corporate America, I would always ask each person their opinion because usually the people going through an experience are the ones that look at how their experience might be better. So I really, I really admire that you were able to do that. And now, um, just shifting the conversation just a little bit, there's so much going on in the courts and with legislation. That's say that has been a very hot topic in the United States, and I believe that you've done quite a bit of research that has helped the court system to determine an outcome on this new legislation that was just approved, at least you know, in many, many of the states in, in the United States. Yes, I mean, surrogacy, as you know, um, is, is very controversial and is still controversial, extremely um, controversial. Yeah. Extremely controversial. So, in um well this started in the late 1990s so in the united kingdom the government was reviewing the law on surrogacy and i was asked to join a three-person committee government committee to review this legislation and it was a bit like the early work on children with lesbian mothers that i realized that there was absolutely no research on what happens to children born through surrogacy. And again, there were lots of prejudices, lots of assumptions about these children. So at the time we began a study of a representative sample of 42 families um, with children born through surrogacy. And we added them to our existing ongoing longitudinal research. And this remains the only study that's followed up children born through surrogacy in the world, as far as I'm aware. Um, and so we've seen these children seven times from age one to age 14. And we're now going back to see them for a final time now that they're 20, turning 21. So young adults. And what we found was, well, the concerns were, you know, how would children feel about being born through surrogacy? So deliberately 
um, you know, conceived by one woman with the intention of handing them over to another couple. And how would they feel in particular if the surrogate was also their genetic mother, which I know isn't very common in the US anymore, but still happens in the UK. And also what if large amounts of money change hands? How would children feel about that? So these were some of the concerns. And there were also concerns about the relationship between the surrogate and the intended parents once the child was born. So if does the surrogate stay in touch with the family? Do the intended parents reject the surrogate once they have their baby? If she stays in touch with the family, does that undermine the mother's feelings of entitlement as a parent to this child? Wow. If the surrogate is the genetic mother. So we were interested in these kinds of questions and that's why we followed up these families. And in fact, we found that the children were doing fine. There was around age seven, there was a slight increase of, in emotional behavioral problems around age seven, which had disappeared by age 10. And that was, um, was that around conversation about surrogacy or was that just general? No, it was just when we were looking at the incidence of emotional and behavioral problems in the children. So, I mean, they, they weren't, it's not that these children showed a high rate of problems, but they did show a slightly higher rate than other children, the children in our other family types. Um, and what was interesting is this is similar to what you find with internationally adopted children. So it seems to be, the, the adoption researchers put it down to children having to deal with issues to do with their identity mm -hmm. earlier than other children. And I think the same was maybe going on with surrogacy, but by age 10, this, you know, they were no different from the other children. They were doing really well. By age 14, they were doing very well indeed. Um, and we, at age 14, were able to ask them directly, how did they feel about being born through surrogacy? Because, you know, everybody always said, oh, these children are going to be, you know, so upset about all of this. It will make them very unhappy. It will make them disturbed. And actually, they just really didn't care, most of them. So of all the children in our, in our study, one was a bit unhappy about it. The re of the rest, either um, the majority, I'd say, were just not very interested. You know, they would say things like, well, you know, it's just there's so many other more interesting things going on in my life. This isn't really an issue for me. And then there were some, a smaller group, who actually felt very positively about it and would say things like, well, I like it. You know, this is something special about me. It's, you know, it's a good story to tell my friends and so on. So, you know, there were all these um, predictions about the bad things that would happen. And again, it turned out not to be the case. So I think that's the advantage of doing longitudinal research. So, you know, you can follow the children up from very young before they know anything about their conception and also allows you to look at things like well when did parents begin to talk to their children and how much difference does that make so that's why going back to see the families every you know few years has been a very um illuminating approach i think in terms of addressing the concerns about surrogacy so the research has um, it has fed into legislation on surrogacy and, um, you know, you're in New York and, and you, as I know, you were involved in 
the change in legislation that happened in New York State. And I think my research did contribute to that, you know, it fed into the, the debates and the discussions. Um, but also in the UK, a similar thing is happening. So in the United Kingdom, where actually we've had legislation on surrogacy since 1985, the, the idea at that point was that surrogacy, because surrogacy is not allowed to be commercial in the United Kingdom. So though surrogates um, can claim expenses, they're not allowed to be paid as such. So, um, so this, the idea was that surrogacy would disappear because if surrogates couldn't be paid, it was thought, well, we wouldn't want to do it. And that turned out not to be the case. Yeah. So at the moment, the Law Commission is working with the United Kingdom government to, to again, have another review of the law on surrogacy. And it seems very likely that surrogacy legislation um, will go before, new legislation will go before the British Parliament in 2022. And the aim is to make it more straightforward, easier for people to have surrogacy. So I think... It's wonderful. Because mm. I've worked with people from Italy who there you're not allowed to use surrogacy at all. They don't tell their friends and family necessarily because of how they look at it. So it's so different depending on the country also. And it's very different. In the UK, um, everybody's very open about surrogacy. And we found that actually in 60% of our families, they were still in touch with the surrogate 10 years later. So when the child was 10, they very much, um, you know, they do form lasting relationships with the surrogate and the child knows, grows up often knowing the surrogate. Yeah, I have so many questions to ask you about this, <laughs> if that's okay right now. My head is like, oh my goodness, so many different directions to go in again. But if I backtrack to the, one of the initial comments that you made, if that's okay, did you find, and I don't know if this is something that was part of the research or not, but was it looked at at all how the parents reacted to the surrogacy versus how the child accepted it? Was that part of it? We were interested in the parents' relationship with the surrogate, yes. Um, and we found that the parents generally had a good relationship with the surrogate. The mother, the intended mother, was more involved with the surrogate during the pregnancy, you know, going to scans and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the relationship was good between both the intended mother and intended father and the surrogate. And, you know, for many of the families, this continued once the child was born. And some in our study have found really, formed really close relationships. And, you know, some of the intended mothers say the surrogate is like my best friend and we're very close, you know, all these years later. So yeah. it wasn't the case, as people predicted, that once the intended parents had the baby, they would then be not interested in the surrogate because that certainly isn't what we found in the United Kingdom. From like the small little minutia of, of population that I've worked with compared to globally, I, I have um, seen both, right? Mostly what you're saying, but also sometimes the mom has a hard time at the end and I find that is an outlier. I think the children, I mean, I suppose, 
It's difficult for me to say because in the UK, the outcomes were generally positive. And I think it's because surrogacy is very well regulated in the UK. I think in the, in the US, it's a much bigger thing. Many more people, well, it's a much bigger country, but many more people have surrogacy. There are many more you know, surrogacy agencies and that kind of thing. And so it, I think some agencies are fantastic, you know, and I've, I've worked with some of them and um, given talks and that kind of thing. But there are some that are maybe not so good. And I think one difference between the two countries is that in the UK, surrogacy is very tightly regulated. So that I think probably the intended parents and surrogates get a lot more support through the process. And maybe that's why generally, um, you know, the outcomes we found have been, um, you know, generally very positive. Yeah, the children that I've spoken to, not too many who are in their 20s who are born through actually traditional surrogacy, um, they, they feel very loved and very supported and always know that they were very wanted. And so when their mother would fight with them or they tell their, or they hear their friends say, oh, they don't even want me, they knew how much they were wanted. And also, I, I think in the United States, it's hard for some people, not all, to really understand that the person who is carrying the baby is doing that to carry the baby. So that's something that they really feel passionate about. And I wish everybody could hear them speak or, or you know, kind mm-hmm. of YouTube and listen to them. They really don't want to raise this child. They really want to carry the child for somebody else. It's not driven by the amount of money that they make because now this is my opinion, which I don't usually give, but the amount of money that they're getting for this does not work out to be that much money compared Mm. to what they're doing. So they really just want to bring this life into the world and then have the person And one of the greatest things that they see or they feel with this process is handing that child to the intended parent. That's right. I mean, that for many surrogates say to us, you know, this is just the most wonderful, satisfying thing. And, you know, talk about the amount of joy involved in that procedure. And they don't see themselves as the mother of this child. You know, all along, they were having this child for another couple. And, you know, what matters to them is is doing that very well. And, the you know, the result of this when they actually do hand over the child, you know, this is often a feeling, gives them feelings of great joy. Yeah, I think bringing families together brings a lot of joy. And so the research that you did and the impact that you had on changing a lot of the laws in the United States, I am hoping that it follows suit now that the laws are being changed as it does in the UK where this is acceptance and support and people can feel, you know, quote unquote, as the people who I work with say, they want to feel like what they've done is normal. And so the more that we can help people to understand and normalize this process of having a family, the better it is for everybody in terms of acceptance and feeling comfortable and not just knowing their love, but not having any shame or guilt associated with it on the part of the parent. It, it, it's interesting. I spoke with somebody from the Archdiocese in New York and one of the priests, and he was on one of my podcasts and spoke about how the church accepts children regardless. They may not accept part of the process, but the child is always loved and the child is always accepted back into the church. And I spoke with somebody, a a rabbi who 
gave basically the same message. So ultimately, everybody wants to accept a, a beautiful life into the world. It's just looking at, does it really matter how that life is brought in or who those parents are? That's right. One thing we haven't touched on, if I could just say for a moment, um, is that although these children are doing really well, some of them, by no means all of them, but some of them are interested in finding out their, about their donor and their donor siblings. So I think that's something else that is important to say that um, certainly, you know, a lot of um, people have been talking about this, but our research showed this as well. So um, there was one study we did with the donor sibling registry in the US and we found that, um, you know, for, for the children and even in, and in our UK studies as well, the, the children and young adults, they wanted to find out about their donor, um, sometimes to meet their donor, sometimes to meet their donor siblings, because it gave them more of a sense of who they were as people and they just wanted to find out, you know, what this person looked like what their interests were, what their family background was, and that kind of thing, because it helped them tell a more complete story about themselves. So, you know, this is different. It doesn't mean the children are disturbed or distressed about the way they were conceived, but I think it is important to point out that many have, not all, have, but many have an interest in finding out about the, the biological connections where they came from. Yeah, that's significant to mention. Absolutely. The result of the findings in terms of the parent and in terms of the child, did you, did you also focus on that a bit? How the parents feel about their children doing the research? And then... Well, the parents also took part in the research and the parents, um, you know, many of them were very supportive of it. The children, um, interestingly, they were more, they felt freer to search for their donor relations if they were in um, either lesbian mother families or single mother families. But they were worried those um, conceived by sperm donation of upsetting their father um, were they to go and look for their donor. The other finding actually that came out of this research, which is interesting, was again, and it backed up everything else we found, is that the earlier children found out about their donor conception, the more accepting they were of it. So this was another study that um, carried out research in a different way, but came up with exactly the same finding, which is interesting because the more you get the same finding from different studies, the more weight you can place on it. What the issues is that these parents have had to struggle so hard to have children. Yes, yes. But actually, once this much wanted child eventually arrives, they're, you know, very loving, committed parents. I think this book should be essential for everybody to read. We're a family, and it's available in the United States and the UK. And I, I'm repeating myself, but truly, I can't encourage people enough to read the book. And I would love and I'm sure you would too, to get the feedback on it of how people found the book and what their impression was when they saw it and was it different before they read the book than it is now. So Susan, thank you so much for all of the work that you've done. It's really amazing. And as I said before, so significant to the world and so significant to families. Of course, if anybody has any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at lauriemetz.net.